how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Judges and Ruth, part two. Well, now, we've been looking at the book of Judges at a very human level, but we need to look at it from a divine level too. God is very prominent in the book of Judges, even though they are in this cycle and this spiral going down. In fact, it says that God did not drive out all the people before them. It says that God sent enemies against them. It says that God heard their prayers and it says that God sent them someone to save the situation. So God was involved with them. Isn't his patience amazing? Even though they got into this cycle, God stayed with his people. And it was he, in a sense, who did everything that was happening. He's very much involved with them. And we need to remember that the God of the Bible delivers to evil as well as from evil. That is why you pray in the Lord's Prayer every day, lead us not into temptation. God can deal with his people by letting evil come as well as delivering them from evil. So lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. That's a valid prayer to a God who can do both. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit can heal the sick but it can also bring disease. It can bring sight to the blind, but it can bring blindness to the sighted, as with the governor of Cyprus in Acts. It can raise the dead, the power of God. It can also kill Ananias and Sapphira. We need to remember that God is a God who can deliver you to evil as well as from. Part of the church's discipline is to hand over a member to Satan as well as to rescue them from Satan. See, there are two sides that come out in all this, and God brought the Ammonites. In fact, in Amos chapter 9 it says God brought the Philistines from Crete at the same time as he brought the Jews out of Egypt and he brought them into the same land. And the Philistines were God's chosen punishment for them when they misbehaved. So God brought the Philistines from Crete into the same land as the Jews from Egypt and God would use the Philistines more than any other people around them to punish them when they did wrong. That's why they figure so much in the list. Now then, we still haven't got past the cycles to the line and the reasons are worth looking at. First of all, second generation members and this is a lesson for churches too. Second generation members tend to be weaker than the first generation. You know, the parents go through a real conversion and then the children grow up in church but they're not of the same quality. Do you understand? Every church has a problem with second generation members and then third and fourth and so on. People have inherited and it says a whole generation grew up who did not know the Lord and what he had done for Israel. 
That's one of the problems in judges, second generation members. And that's why they did what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in God's eyes. They became a lawless generation. They didn't remember the Lord and therefore they didn't recall his deliverance and they weren't grateful for their salvation. The second thing is second generation leaders. Everything was fine until the leader died. When Gideon died or when Samson died, then there was a kind of vacuum of leadership and they got into trouble again. Now other nations had dynasties, therefore they had a continuity of leadership. They had royal lines. Israel didn't. There was no king in those days. And this is a scarlet thread running all through Judges. When Gideon delivered them from the Midianites, do you know what they said to Gideon? Gideon, we want you to be the king and we want your son to rule after you. In other words, would you start a dynasty so we have some continuity of leadership? And Gideon, wise man that he was, said, you already have a king. The Lord is your king. Your real problem is that you're not looking to the Lord as your king. And he refused the throne. And then there's Abimelech. I forgot to mention him, but Abimelech wanted to be king and he tried to be king and he killed all his brothers to try and get the throne. One of them escaped, however, and uh, it all ended very unhappily when Abimelech was besieging a city and a woman dropped a millstone on him. And he nearly died of surprise as well, but I'm afraid he didn't die and he called on someone to run a sword through him so that it would never be said that he died at the hand of a woman. But Abimelech made a, a bid for the throne. And there is this refrain running through, there was no king, there was no king. There was a king but he was invisible and he was in heaven and because this was second generation members they wanted a visible king. So that's where we leave the book of Judges and God was going to provide a king and the little book of Ruth tells us where the king would come from. So you see how this theme of no king is completed with the book of Ruth and they belong together. So let's look at the book of Ruth. We're into a very different scene now. The same time but there could hardly be a greater contrast with all the dreadful goings-on further north from Dan to Benjamin. But way down in the south we're in a different atmosphere. There's Bethlehem taken from the shepherd's fields below and uh, here's a typical cornfield in that area and it's almost like reading one of Hardy's Wessex novels, the book of Ruth, isn't it? It's got romance in it, it's, uh, you know, Barbara Carton could have thought it up or Catherine Cookson, it's a real women's magazine sort of story, it's a beautiful story. It, it, you feel you're coming into fresh air, don't you, when you read Ruth after judges and cutting up prostitutes and all sorts of things. To get into Ruth is to be in a totally different atmosphere. Yet remember that it's only two miles from the tribe of Benjamin to Bethlehem. We've only moved two miles and yet we might have moved a million. It, it is just so different, the whole picture. Now the contrast of the book of Judges is marked. First of all, the book of Ruth has far fewer characters in it, one family virtually, far fewer places and a far shorter number of years and yet the book of Ruth 
is the answer to the book of Judges. So let's uh, look at the book of Ruth and uh, get it into some kind of outline. Well, it's in four chapters and it's the easiest thing in the world to divide them up. First two chapters are about two inseparable women and the second two chapters are about two influential men. And we have a mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law, a redeemer kingsman and a royal king. Two women and two men are the characters in this drama. And uh, let's just go through the story first to get a feel of it. Chapter 1, the mother-in-law's loss. There was this mother called Naomi and there was a famine in Judea. They were short of food. They should have learned from their history whenever God's people go somewhere else looking for food, they get into trouble. It happened to Abraham, he went down into Egypt. It happened to Isaac, he did the same. It happened to Joseph and his brothers and they all went down there to find food and just got into trouble. And Naomi and her husband said, let's go to Moab. We'll cross the Jordan and we'll go into Transjordan, we'll go to Moab, the hills on the far side of the Dead Sea. We've heard they've got enough food. It was a fatal mistake. They went there with their two sons. The two sons both married Moabites, so they married outside the people of God. Things went from bad to worse. Naomi's husband died and the two sons died and three widows were left alone. And a widow's lot in those days was pretty bad. They, d they weren't enlightened about widows' pensions or help or welfare and widows were in <coughs> real trouble. All this flowed from having taken a wrong step from having relied on man rather than God and having worked out a human answer to their situation instead of asking God what was happening. God would have told them that the famine was part of his punishment of the Judeans and if only they'd turned back to him they'd have <coughs> enough food again. But they didn't even wait for that answer. And Naomi became very bitter. The word Naomi actually means pleasure. But when she came back almost unrecognisable to her old relatives, she said, call me Mara. I don't want to be called Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She came back quite a bitter woman and as she left Moab, her two daughters-in-laws said, shall we come with you? And she said, no, there's no way you'll get a husband in Judea because they don't marry outside their clan. You better stay here, both of you. You're far more likely to find a man to look after you if you stay here. And Orpah said, right, I'll do that. And she went back to Moab and she totally disappears from the Bible. She has no more place in God's purpose. That was her choice. At the human level it was good advice but she made her choice and she disappears. Ruth also made a choice and her name has gone down in history as an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, how much hangs on a choice? Just one decision in your whole life can change everything. It's the choices we make that make up our character and Ruth made the right choice at the right time. 
She was a lovely character, but it was her decision, it was her choice that brought her into the line of God's purpose and she became part of God's royal line. Not part of the cycle, part of the line. And it's amazing, her name is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. And she was a Gentile and a woman. And normally Jews didn't put women in their genealogies, never mind Gentile women, but there she is, Ruth. Just one decision and she becomes part of that line. Well, though Naomi advised them to stay, Ruth said, I'm coming. And we now have in chapter 2 a daughter-in-law's loyalty. And it's very interesting, her choice. She's a beautiful character, inside and out. Interesting, the, the, the patriarchs were not indifferent to good looks, you know. You read what 1 Peter 3 says about Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca. Uh, they like their women looking good on the outside and looking good on the inside. Both. And in fact, Peter, oh, I'm getting sidetracked now, but I thought you ladies might be interested in Peter's recipe for beauty on the inside and beauty on the outside. And it's all in your character. It's a, he advises Christian wives to become more attractive to live with and more attractive to look at. He says that's the way to get your husband converted, incidentally. <laughs> so it's full of good advice, but he says that's what the patriarch's wives were like and Ruth was beautiful on the inside and the outside. The most beautiful lady I ever knew was 84 years of age. She had enough lines on her face to look like a telephone exchange. I said, Miss Harris, anybody told you you've got a really beautiful face? And you know, she took it so beautifully, she said, you're not the first to have told me that. <laughs> and then she told me something else. She said, when I was young, I was so ugly, so plain, that I never had a boyfriend, I never got a chance of marriage, I was never asked at the school dance to dance or anything. But she said, when I was 27, I fell in love with Jesus. And then she twinkled in her eyes and she said, and you know, you get to be like the people you love, don't you? And it was so beautiful. She's a lovely lady. Beauty came out from the inside. Well, Ruth had a beautiful character. She was full of humility, and yet she had that boldness that men find attractive. And uh, she was full of loyalty. She had a serving spirit, and yet she wasn't passive and she wasn't an underdog. She, beautiful combination here. But it began with the right choice. She not only chose to stay with Naomi, she chose Naomi's people and she chose Naomi's God. That's, that's said. She wasn't just staying with Naomi. She said, I've thought it through and I want to be one of your people and I want your God to be mine. Great decision. And the Lord was therefore real to her, even though she'd seen him punishing his people. Amazing, really. And she says, I will four times. Almost a marriage service, what she said to Naomi. She says, I will four times. Your God will be my God. I will go with you. Loyalty is a very precious quality to the Lord. Very precious. In fact, loyalty and love are almost the same word in Hebrew. And God knows nothing of a love that isn't loyal. Covenant love. 
it sticks through thick and thin, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Without loyalty, it isn't real love. That's a very important insight. And God values loyalty greatly. And it says, Ruth found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Favour is the same word as favourite. She became one of God's favourites. Favour is a great thing to have. It's ten times better than having good fortune. To have God's favour, good fortune, which would you choose? I brought along my family crest to show you. Pawson means son of peacock. Paw is the old word for peacock. I'm not sure what that makes me, but um, <laughs> I, I found that out in Poland. They called me Mr. Pavson. I said, why do you say Pavson? They said, well, Pav, P-A-W, Pav, that means peacock in Polish. So I came back, in Old English it did too, so I'm the son of a peacock. That doesn't thrill me at all. What thrills me is that I found that the family motto is Fervente Deo, God favours. Well, which would you rather have on your family crest? Good fortune or God favours? God's favour is worth all the fortune in the world. And God favoured Ruth. She became a favourite of God because of her loyalty, because of her right choice. And therefore she became the talk of the town in Bethlehem. And in fact it was said of her, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to Ruth. Isn't that a beautiful description? The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to this girl. And so everybody talked about it which brings us to the second half of the book, Two Influential Men. Now then, I need to explain a bit of Hebrew law here. Boaz was a man of great standing and a man of generosity and he rewarded Ruth for her loyalty. He told all the gleaners in the field, now leave plenty, or all the reapers, leave plenty at the side for gleaning for that Moabite woman. And he showed her kindness. Now, there are two strange customs uh, in the book of Ruth with which we're not familiar, so I better explain them to you. The first is this, it's called the Levirate marriage. Remember what I told you about the year of Jubilee, that all the property went back to the original family that owned it in the year of Jubilee, but supposing there wasn't any family left to give it back to? Now it's because there must be a family line to survive, to claim the property back in the year of Jubilee, that the Levirate law said this, that if a woman died, sorry, if a woman's husband died before she had a son to get the property back, then her husband's brother had to marry her and give her a son to keep the property in the family by keeping the family line going. Do you understand? It's a strange law to us and it uh, really would have little sense to us in our situation. So here was a widow, Ruth, with no husband or son. Therefore, some relative was under the obligation to marry her, to keep her husband's name and line going, to re-inherit the property when it came available in the Jubilee year. You follow? That was the law. So that's one custom. And by the way, that lies behind that silly question of the Sadducees to Jesus. Do you remember that question? when they talked about a woman whose seven husbands all died, which seems a bit statistically unlikely, but anyway, that happened. They were just trying to trap him because the Sadducees didn't believe in a future life after death. That's why they were sad, you see, and now you'll remember that, all right? 
and they asked Jesus that silly question. He said, you go wrong because you don't know the scripture or the power of God. Now the other was a social custom, again, not familiar to us. A woman, a girl couldn't propose marriage to a man in those days, even on St Valentine's Day, they didn't have such a thing. But a woman could not propose marriage. But she was free to indicate that she would like to be married to someone and she could do that in a number of ways and one was to warm a man's feet, <laughs> which is rather a nice way. <laughs> I mean a, a two-legged hot water bottle is rather nice as all you married folk know. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll be studying shortly, talks about, uh, you know, how can one be warm in a bed? Very practical the Bible, isn't it? So we find that Ruth went and lay at Boaz's feet and covered his feet up with a cloak. She was saying, I wouldn't mind being married to you. And she was free to do that in the custom. She couldn't propose, but she could hint <laughs> and very strongly hint. So those two little uh, customs just explain how it came about that Boaz married Ruth. And Boaz was very flattered in a sense by her desire and thought it was lovely to be chosen because he was neither the oldest kinsman nor the youngest. He was much older than Ruth so he was rather chuffed that she chose him and not his younger brother, but his older brother technically was the one who should fulfil the legal duty and he said, provided it's okay with my older brother, then I'd love to marry you. So he went off to the judges in the gate and they sorted it all out and his older brother said, you can have her and uh, took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz. That's another social way of saying, you know, it's like the spitting on your hand and shaking your hand, you know, it settles the deal and uh, that was it and everything was hunky-dory. Now then, what was the Lord doing in all this? You know, we looked at it just as a human romance. It's a beautiful story. You know, you can enter into it, this lovely rural romance. But God was doing something behind all this. What was he doing? Well, actually he was preparing a royal line for a king for Israel. That's what he was after. And her right choice was really becoming part of God's right choice and she was going to be part of this royal line. There's another book in the Bible which we'll be looking at called Esther, which is another romance, one that doesn't even mention God, but here of course God is frequently mentioned, but by other people. And in fact, nearly always you find people asking the Lord to bless Ruth. Naomi says, the Lord bless you, Ruth, for being with me. Boaz says, the Lord bless you, Ruth, for choosing me and not my two brothers. And everybody's saying to this girl, the Lord bless you, the Lord bless you, the Lord bless you, and they mean it. And they use God's name, Yahweh. You know, whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters in your Old Testament, that means that in the Hebrew it says Yahweh. And I'm afraid it's such an awkward word for us to use that most English Bibles just put Lord in capital letters. If it's in small letters, it is a translation of the Hebrew Adonai, Lord. But if it's in capital letters, you know that there is God's name. God has a name. 
And some years ago I was praying and I said, Lord, I'd love to call you by name but I don't like Yahweh, it, it doesn't turn me on. It, can you give me an English equivalent that would give me the feelings of your name? And straight away into my mind came the word always. I thought, that's it. Yahweh is a participle of the verb to be. And I thought, God, your name is always. That's just your first name. You're always my provider, always my helper, always my healer, always. Your being, you're always. And you know, of all Jesus' 250 names and titles, one of my favourites is Yes. He is the yes to every promise of God. Fancy with a God called always whose son is called yes. You could not have a more positive faith than that. But they use his name, may always bless you, may always comfort you, may always be kind to you. They're always blessing. So Ruth came into a vital line, a family tree, because Boaz was a direct descendant of Judah, one of the twelve tribes, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Judah means praise, Judah to you, but Judah to the Hebrew. And he was a direct descendant of Judah, which means in fact that he was a direct descendant of Tamar. Remember the incestuous rape of Tamar? What is this saying? God can even use these situations and these people to produce Jesus when they make the right choice. And Jacob, dying Jacob, had given a prophecy to Judah, to Judah. Yaakov made a dying promise to Judah. Why do we anglicise all these names? And this was his promise, the scepter, the scepter, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs." That interesting promise. And this was years and years before they even thought of having a king, and yet here is Jacob promising Judah that one day a royal line would form in Judah. And Bethlehem Ephrathah, Beit Lehem is house Beit Lehem bread, the house of bread, the place where the corn grew. Beit Lehem would be the capital. And uh, you remember Micah's promise, Bethlehem of Judea, you are not the least in the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come. It all ties together, doesn't it? And furthermore, in the book of Ruth there is an extraordinary little bit of information that when Judah came into the Promised Land, Judah actually conquered and took a city called Jerusalem, right there on the border between Benjamin and Judah. And Judah actually took Jerusalem and gave it to Benjamin who lost it. And that's in the book of Ruth. There's something happening here. There's a royal line that's going to come to David of Bethlehem, but there's also a city of Jerusalem being brought into the picture here, which David would later take and make his capital, and has become the most fascinating city name ever since. 
begin to see all the threads working together. There's a purpose being worked out. Judah should have kept Jerusalem, but they gave it away to Benjamin, and Benjamin went and lost it. And by now it was a pagan city again. Tragic story. So things are beginning to come together. Boaz's grandmother, do you know who she was? She was not a Jew either. She was Rahav, the prostitute in Jericho. It's a mixed family tree, isn't it? Tamar, raped, Rahav, prostitute, Ruth, Moabite, and yet these are the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? Well now, somebody in the little interval said, you haven't told us who wrote Judges and why. Well, I told you that Judges and Ruth are one book, so now let's try and see the connection, who wrote it and why. Now, try and follow me. As in the whole Bible, the end of a book often reveals its purpose. And that phrase, there was no king in Israel in those days, means that the book of Judges, and therefore Ruth, was written after they got a king. Do you follow me? I mean, if you say there was no king in those days, you are talking to a people who have a king now, right? It is also obvious from the end of the book of Ruth, giving David's royal line, and Jesse was the father of David, it does not say the father of David the king, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Here is a mention of David and yet he's not yet king. So we can begin to say when this book was written. It was written when Saul was king. Do you follow me thus far? It is written when Saul, the first king of Israel, is on the throne, the people's choice, and they chose him because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. They chose him for his height and his good looks and his physical appearance, which was a big mistake. Now then, if we know when this whole thing was written, we now know who. If you read the speeches of the prophet Samuel in the first book of Samuel, it's identical language to the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. In fact, Samuel loved to summarise their history in just this way and there is one sermon in the book of Samuel which is identical, it's almost a condensed version of the book of Judges. So who wrote this? Samuel wrote it. The prophet Samuel wrote the book of Judges and the book of Ruth as one book when Saul was king. Now which tribe did Saul come from? Benjamin. Do you know what the whole message of the book is? Benjamin is bad stock. Look to Bethlehem. In other words, this whole thing was written to prepare the people to switch from Saul to David because Samuel had secretly anointed David already and knew he was the next king. How can I prepare the people to accept David as king rather than Saul's line? And I'm afraid it's a, it's a pretty good piece of propaganda writing. He says, look what sort of blood Benjamin is. They are the pits. Look at them, look what happened. They are the bottom end. 
But now look at these lovely people in Bethlehem. Look at this lovely family. <laughs> Do you see? A brilliant piece of writing. And I believe that Samuel the prophet wrote this double book to switch people's thinking from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah and to prepare them for this person he only mentions in the last word and he just mentions his name, Jesse was the father of David. But Samuel knew he was God's appointed king and was going to change the whole situation. Well, that's my theory but I believe it's got strong basis for it, especially when he talks about this city of Jerusalem that Benjamin lost and which Judah had taken and which Judah's going to get again, as it were, when David becomes king. In other words, God plans long-term and we can see God's further plan in the son of David we call Jesus, Bethlehem Ephrathah, born in Bethlehem. Don't need to repeat the story. His birthplace was exactly right. And yet, Jesus himself calls Jerusalem the city of the great king. Now then, let me finish. How does a Christian use then this book of Judges and Ruth? If all scripture is able to make us wise unto salvation and searching the scriptures because they bear witness to Christ, what do we get from Judges and Ruth? First from Judges, individual Christians can learn a great deal from the characters in the book of Judges. It's an ironic thing that Robert Maxwell, when he rented Headington Hall near Oxford, there was a stained glass window above the staircase in Headington Hall of Samson pulling the pillars of the temple in, committing suicide and bringing everything down with him. When Robert Maxwell bought, built a chateau in France for his wife, he ordered the identical stained glass window to be made to put in the French chateau but with one difference, that the face had to be the face of Robert Maxwell, the man who committed suicide and pulled everything down with him. That's fascinating. But uh, we can learn negatively from the mistakes that people made as well as positively from the right choices they made and we Christians can learn a lot from looking at Gideon and looking at Samson and looking at Jephthah and Barak and <coughs> These are all witnesses around us, says Hebrews 11. They're all watching us now to see how we make out, to see if we run our race. They are our witnesses. We need to remember them. But oh, the church needs to study judges because the church can get into the same kind of anarchy and the church can get to the same solution to the anarchy by looking for a visible monarchy by following a man and that is fatal. We've got a king and if we all do what is right in his eyes, the church would be united tomorrow. But I'm afraid we've become Wesleyans and Lutherans and Calvinists and we're following men instead of doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And God himself is the same God as he was in those days. What can we learn from the book of Ruth? We are Ruth. I'm a Gentile but I've come into the people of God and I'm in the royal line. I'm in the royal family of God now because in Christ you are royal. You're a prince, you're a princess. Hold your head up, walk as royalty. 
you're in the royal line, you were Gentiles, you were far from the commonwealth of Israel, you were right outside and God has brought us into this royal line, not before Jesus but after Jesus. And Ruth is us and Boaz is our Jesus and we've got married to him and it's brought us right into the line of the people of God. We are the bride and he's the bridegroom and the whole Bible is a romance and it finishes with a wedding and they live happily ever after. This whole Bible is a romance and the Ruth Boaz romance is a perfect picture of Christ and his Gentile bride, which we are. Exciting? Well, it's Valentine's Day Sunday but there's no romance like the Bible, none at all. It's a love story from beginning to end and the book of Judges and the book of Ruth will repay study for those who dig in it. Right, well that's it for Judges and Ruth. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.